HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Dyed Green on HRN. I'm Kate McCabe. And I'm Max Sussman. How are you doing, Kate? Pretty good. Pretty good. Can't complain. Yep, me too. <laughs> Same here. Pretty, pretty good. Um, so this last interview we did was pretty, I thought it was pretty great. It was pretty fun. I thought it was a fun interview to do. We talked to Keith Coleman, and Keith has a really interesting history in the Irish food world. He started off at Fumbly Cafe many years ago. He went on to be the chef at Fia Cafe, which was uh, a short-lived but uh, really popular and critically acclaimed small plates kind of vibe. Um, and then he and his partner went on to start Root, the Roots Project, and they moved out, out of Dublin up to the Slane area. And then basically right around then, COVID hit. So kind of is a really interesting um i don't know like a little microcosm of all a lot of the changes and and history of of that part of the food world i think it's sort of interesting as you're talking about his background his career trajectory it does follow a similar path to your own because you also started a pop-up during the pandemic and then you also transitioned into being a private chef, which is what yeah. Keith is doing right now. There's a lot of parallels there. Um, but I think like when you were just saying that, I think it's actually, it's not like super unique in the sense that like a lot of people went through that experience, um, went from working at a restaurant they really love to starting their own project to kind of basically having a burnout <laughs> and then trying to figure out what to do on their own coinciding with the pandemic hitting. And I think that there's a lot of chefs out there that have basically been through that experience. So I hope they listen and enjoy the conversation. So you're saying that basically neither of you are particularly special and that you don't have a <laughs> deeply spiritual connection. You're not some sort of a... So, yeah. So that's, that's serious stuff. If you uh, listen to this interview, we talk about 
beige food a little bit and the beige food movement. So for listeners who are unfamiliar with Keith's Instagram, he'll often take pictures of food he cooks and tag it, hashtag beige food. And so we talk about beige food and what that means to him. Um, it's more than a color. Spoiler, you know, spoiler alert. It's more than just a color. Yeah, There's I think that it would be there. helpful um, if you would just explain what that actually means because when you first started, when you first said beige food, you know, we were talking about it in the context of people's kind of preconceived notions of Irish food, which we talked to almost everybody about. And I pictured a plate with um, basically fish and chips with actual beige yeah. food. So it, it is a little bit deeper than that. The way yeah, no, of course. It. I mean, it's it's I not mean, really Ireland like, specific. He does it in his own words really well, but I would just say it's an approach to food that um, <clears throat> cuts is, out all the crap. Yeah, cuts out all the crap. It kind of is like kind of purposefully going against the extremely colorful and composed and very Instagrammable food that you see out there these days, which incidentally is a sort of a recurring theme on this show. Karen from Happy Tummy Company talked about how her vision of bread is kind of exactly opposed to some of the Instagrammable breads that are many times designed for impressive appearance and don't necessarily have deep flavor or are that good for you necessarily. So um, that's a cool kind of parallel theme there. Another topic that we discussed with Keith, which I was really interested in, was kitchen culture in Irish restaurants. So we discussed a recent article by Katie McGinnis about abusive chefs in high-end Dublin restaurants. The journalist had done a lot of research, tons of interviews, and people that were working in these kitchens were talking about all sorts of horrific things that were happening, like like physical and verbal abuse. And then, you know, in our conversation, I think we actually touched on, um, interestingly, like maybe a different approach to, as to how to curb some of that behavior. Because we talked a lot about Fumbly, which is a place that Keith spent a lot of sort of like his formative cooking years. And um, we interviewed Ashling from the Fumbly, who's one of the founders. And, you know, one of the themes that continues to emerge when pe- whenever people talk about that place is that it lacks a lot of those toxic characteristics and it's uh, overwhelmingly a much more positive experience of a place to work. So we talked about some of the reasons that that's the case. I think there's a lot of really important lessons there for how to build a restaurant that lasts a long time and has a really good positive lasting legacy for people and for the community and for all that good stuff too. So we get into that in the interview. So yeah, yeah, cut the crap. Cut the crap. Let's make get back more, to Keith, though. Yeah, cut the crap and make so cool. beige food. Just Such a let's cool get guy. let's get more let's get beige. Let's get more beige. Okay. Well, um, without further ado, our interview with Keith Coleman. Thanks all for listening, and as always, you can find us on Twitter at Dyed Green Pod, and you can email us at Dyed Green at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We love hearing from you, and. Um, Thanks for listening. Cheerio. Hi, Keith. Welcome to Dyed Green. So where are you right now? Talk to us. Uh, recording from our little office space in Belmont House, uh, where we live and work now, in, uh, right on the border of Cavan and Monaghan. Sounds lovely. I was thinking we could start off and you could tell us a little bit about how you got involved in 
food and cooking and how you got involved in the world of food. How did it all start for you? How far back do I go? This is an interesting question. As far um, back as uh, as your therapist recommends. <laughs> uh, I guess in terms of my first job working in the food industry was when I left uh, college. Um, I didn't I didn't do culinary arts in college. I actually have a degree in environmental science. Um, which is not proving me much good at the moment or ever has, but you know yourself. Um, I worked in a chicken rotisserie in a small shop, like quite local to me. It was one of those cases of just wanting a job. I think I saw an advert in the window and I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I could like give that a crack. Um, and cook- cooking was always a hobby for me more than it was uh you know, I didn't approach it thinking like, oh, like this could be like a profession or my career, I guess. I, I feel like you probably had a similar experience, Max, but like, you know, getting into cooking professionally or doing this as your job, but for having come at it from it being a hobby, like and just enjoying home cooking. So, so it was like, yeah, the journey like began at home and then it was just like a skill that built up over time that like kind of was super handy to have like while traveling and uh i i basically had like a decision between pursuing becoming a bike mix or working in the kitchen and like just decided to work in the kitchen and i I would think like you only watch these like death tables shows or kind of like these very overly dramatic um shows and they kind of tell these stories about how like they grew up under their grandmother's table and like can recall all these like shapes of paths that are falling onto the floor and all that kind of stuff and you, you kind of think like you feel there's a bit of an imposter syndrome there like if you don't have a similar kind of story but like my story is probably the same for a lot of people where it's just like you know it's not that you accidentally end up working at the death but it's not like you're you know it's not something like I've pursued from a, a really young age or pursued like very fervently I'm like I really enjoy cooking and I I love my job but it's not I'm not one of these people who's like this is like my whole world and this is 100% what I want to dedicate myself to you know I think like when you're working in kitchens or in hospitality or maybe especially like as a chef like the hours are just so time consuming you know mentally and physically and then you know yourself like you're going home and you're thinking like oh Jesus like did I put that order in or like you know or when the fridge is going to break or, you know, it's just so, um, like, it's really immersive that you don't really actually have time to, like, think too much about whether, like, this is the right move or not, or to, like, evaluate. Uh, and I think, like, it's been so interesting then to see the impact of uh, COVID on hospitality and maybe it's just it has given people, like, a lot of free time to reconsider Um and kind of take stock but you know yourself like when you're kind of when you're really in the thick of it you don't even have time to like to think about like you know if you're happy or not because you're just too busy (laughs) right i mean so like the funny thing so the full full disclosure is like the irony of this interview is that like we're both on our breaks right now from our private chef jobs so like (laughs) (laughs) it's definitely a shift that's allowed me to continue to pursue cooking, but also have free time and ability to pursue projects and hobbies and things that like I haven't really had time for 
Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. For a really long time. Still, yeah, you still get to kind of scratch that creative itch that I, there's something about cooking like that I can't really compare to. You probably feel the same that it's difficult to compare to something like gardening or working, you know, as a trade because like you're preparing food, you know, you're getting to be creative, but then it's also like something very, uh, I don't even know what the word is, like elemental or sort of um, primitive about like just cooking food that it just gives you such a, like a deep level of satisfaction. But then, yeah, you can kind of lose sight of that. I think when you get into very high end professional kitchens and I, I don't know, I'd like to think I'm in a place now where like the things I like the most about cooking, I just get to do every day and I don't have to put up with much of the things that I don't like about cooking. That's a very like convoluted way to try and explain it, but you know what I mean? That's a pretty amazing place to be, I would say. I mean, for me, it's always been like, <clears throat> I like I think people who cook have to, you have to enjoy working with your hands and being like having it be active, but then you're also getting to be creative at the same time. I don't think there's really a lot left in, um, lot left in like today. Like a lot of the stuff that you, people used to make by hand is made by machines or by people in like really far away countries. Like people used to make their clothes by hand. People used to make their furniture by hand. People used to make their shoes. Yeah. I mean, obviously there was a lot less maybe career mo- mobility in those times for a lot of people, but there were a lot of different ways you could use to work you could used to be able to work with your hands, but it's definitely something that we've lost a lot of those possibilities and cooking is one place where it has remained, I think. Yeah, it has remained, yeah. Can I ask you, I guess this is a question maybe for both of you, because I think, you know, both working as private chefs, obviously the time, um, the schedule is better and maybe more forgiving and the pay is obviously also better. But I would imagine, you know, never having been a chef myself, but having worked in restaurants for many years, um, there must be some part of you that misses the camaraderie in the kitchen and also just as chefs, maybe um, like the energy and maybe feeding off of other chefs' creative ideas. I think there must be some element of that that you miss when you're, you know, working largely by yourself in somebody's home. You can answer that first, Max. I'll copy your answer. <laughs> I mean, or that's not, a good, that's, I guess. That's a good I question. Like there yeah. is something that is exciting and uncomparable, I guess, about like a really, really busy restaurant. But like, as much as I think back with like a little bit of nostalgia for those times where it's like, oh, the busy service and everyone's in it together. I also like have a lot of anxiety about think like I get a bit of a pit of like dread in my stomach thinking about that as well. So it's like, I kind of want to be like a little more chill. Like I'm not necessarily an adrenaline junkie where I like need that. And I know a lot of people are and they, you know, that's sort of what keeps them in it or whatever. But you know, there, I would say for me, the, <laughs> the pro, you know, the benefits outweigh the, what I miss. But even just that, you know, not, not necessarily just the excitement or the adrenaline, but just the, you know, influence and, and new, getting new ideas from other people, um, and working, you know, together on something. Totally. I, um, I, I feel like I still get to satisfy that now because of the way my schedule is where, you know, when I do have time off you know say if a friend messages me and wants me to help them out with a pop-up or like another private dinner or something like that I'm in a position now where I can like pick and choose little projects like that or you know cooking for 
dinner parties or like say there a couple of weeks ago, I was helping a friend Kuan out with cooking for like 80 people in a field with barbecues and under a big stretch tent. So I think uh, if, if I was working at a normal restaurant kitchen, I just wouldn't have like the mental capacity to ever consider being able to like step outside my own world and help someone else. But now that I work in a much more relaxed environment, like I actually have time to, yeah, to kind of choose these like fun things to do where previously you wouldn't. And then, um, yeah, I think you said something interesting there, Max, like where you just, yeah, I think just trying to be more chill about it all as well is definitely something that resonates with me because I think, especially like when you're approaching I, private depth, it requires a much more relaxed approach because it's not like people are like booking in for dinner and it's like, okay, well, like they said, they're going to sit down at 6 p.m. So I need to have like the plates hot and like starters need to be ready to like fire. And then as soon as that's gone, like I'm going to get onto like the fish and then like this, like you have to be so much more relaxed with the whole thing because you might get like a text message and it's like, oh, by the way, like we're just going for a much longer walk than we expected. And there's like, five extra people going for dinner is that okay and it's like yeah of course it's okay like because you're not not that you're you're not taking like what you're doing seriously but you have to be so much more flexible and relaxed about the whole thing maybe then you would be like in a professional environment so like that's a great learning experience as well yeah and and relaxed but also like over prepared in some other ways that perhaps you're not used to and like the worst thing could happen is like you run out of food. That is something that I get anxiety yeah, about yeah. here in this position too. So I'm just like, well, that's never going to, that's if I, if yeah. I'm, I have the ability, that's not going to happen. I shouldn't say it's never going to yeah. happen. But you know. <laughs> yeah. We have like, so today I'll have to be like 12 guests in the house in total. So yesterday it was just like the amount of food shopping and grocery shopping and everything that I had to do. But yeah, because when you're working as a private chef, a lot of times in these scenarios, you're not like, I still use some of my, like wholesale um, accounts or connections, say if I want to get really good quality seafood in or other kind of like high-end ingredients. But generally, it's me just going to the supermarket and, you know, I might talk to the owners and be like, hey, I'm going to the shop, like anything specific you need. And it's like, oh, can you get me like reading glasses or like a toothbrush or, you know, so you're kind of like, you're in charge of like everything from doing all of the grocery shopping, preparing all the food, clearing everything away, doing all of the dishes and... So it's really like immersive in that way. So do you find like, um, compared to when you were cooking in restaurants, you know, obviously sourcing is really, really important. And, um, you know, I know you've worked in organic farms and stuff too, which we can talk about later, but like, how do you find, like, do you find it a challenge to shop and get the good stuff now that you're in this position and you're going to the market supermarket more as opposed to ordering from bigger farms or wholesalers or. I think like what's really tricky, you know, say if you're trying to order like you want really good lemon or just these like really basic ingredients. Um, I can't order like a 40 case of le- lemon from my usual like fruit and veg guy because like half of them will just go rotten by the time I get through them. Whereas a normal restaurant could go through like five or six cases of lemons in a day. Um, so, you know, you're trying to get access to like the quality that you know is there, but it's not available in that quantity into small quantities. I think you have to just spend more time at it. Um, but I, that, like, I've always spent a lot of time on sourcing anyway, so I find that like part of the job really enjoyable. I suppose just like 
yeah, leaving voice messages on suppliers and ordering in like exactly what you want. Um, that's kind of part of the challenge. So trying to like, you know, dig deep like on the internet or through like Instagram and social media and try and find like, oh, there's someone across the other side of the county that makes like really nice raw milk or has really good tomatoes. Where do they, do they go to the farmer's market or do they do like a box scheme? And then more often than not, like you just met, reach out to these people and then try and figure out how you can like meet them halfway or they can deliver and you know yourself. Um, is yeah. there a lot of local produce where you are in Cavan? Um, yeah, definitely for sure. Maybe like having come from like the Boyne Valley and Slane and then previous to that, like working in on the McNally's like organic farm in North County, Dublin, like we're really like spoiled for choice. Um, and I kind of find the it's like Ireland is an interesting country where the further you get away from Dublin, the sort of less availability there is, or maybe the less of, of um, like the less of a community of artisan producers there are until you get down to somewhere like West Cork or Galway. So if you're in the middle of the country, it's kind of a bit trickier and you're always sort of like focused back towards Dublin. Um, like I, was, I went down to the McNally farm shop there last week and, you know, the plate's just like heaving with like amazing courgettes and French beans and tomatoes and everything. And I can still get some of that around here, but I can't get all of that. Probably because the market for that doesn't exist here, but it just takes time. It's an emerging kind of like community, I suppose. Yeah, totally. So, so you worked at where you worked for McNally Farm and um, you started there like during the pandemic, right? Yeah. So I, I don't know if you have to do this, Max, and I'm not sure if it's something that's coming with age, but like, and actually mocks me for this. Every once in a while, I actually have to sit down and go to like my photos and wonder like, when, <laughs> when, did, like, when did I do that? Or like, what? I don't know. I'm terrible both... with years. Kate knows. Yeah, like, with was years, that 2009? She's like, no, that was 2014. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Pretty, well, like even... now that we have a kid, it's totally different. Uh, okay. I am really good yeah. at years now, but anything before 2015, I'm just like, I don't know. Could, could have been anything. Yeah. Because I can't, like, they, I try and, I always try and think of my life, well, like, not my life, but with cooking, it's like, when did I start working in the family? And I was in, they had their 10th birthday there only recently, and I was in, gotten away to, to one of the owners, Ackling, and, like, I was kind of, ta- I, I had this kind of similar conversation with her. I was like, I feel like I only left here, like, two years ago. And it's like, no, Keith, you left here, like, fucking six years ago. Like, and you only worked here for like two years, so and that was two thousand and fourteen. So, um, good to know she's keeping yeah. track, right? I yeah, feel that crazy. way about a restaurant that I worked at, but yeah, you can uh, time. Yeah, it's sort of like time gets warped. Maybe like the further away you move, you know. I you know I can't like we. Wait, what was the question? Oh, you're talking about the McNally. Yeah, um, and like I wanted, I was wondering, like, so. You know, you're you're a chef. You buy vegetables. Mm-hmm. You cook vegetables. Obviously, someone has to grow them, and it's like a really yep. interesting part piece of the puzzle that a lot of chefs don't really get a chance to um, yeah. really experience directly. So, was it something that you were always interested sure. in, or was it um, more an op- of an opportunity because of the circumstances of the time, or both? And and like, what was it like for both. you? Yeah, yeah, I think it's both. So, like, our my sort of like relationship with the McNally's began like probably what age am I now I'm 32 I'd say god I'd say like 12 to 14 years ago 
Um, I grew up in like a seaside town in Dublin called uh, Dalkey. And the guys used to do a farmer's market in Dunleary on Sundays. And myself and my sister, who was into food as well, we used to go down every Sunday and we'd get like a falafel from the falafel stall and, you know, kind of just mosey around, get a coffee, sit in the park. And then we'd always buy vegetables from McNally's and just cook like a Sunday lunch or a Sunday dinner for my family. So there was always sort of a connection there with the guys. And then when I was working in the Bumbley, um, I, I'd say for all intents and purposes, in terms of restaurants and cafes, the Bumbley um, put McNally's on the map in terms of when restaurants and cafes really started to consider working with small producers. And then it became very like prevalent. And then other chefs who've worked in the Bumbley, I feel like have taken that knowledge or like that sort of commitment to the McNally's with them wherever they've gone. And like, they're great people and they're a really nice family. But like at the end of the day, like the quality had to be exceptional to want to still work with them. And, and, and compared to like the sort of standard fruit and veg you can get in Ireland, like they, it just kind of shines above all else. And like, this has this kind of crazy cult following now, I think just always like had such a strong connection with with the guys like during the time in FIA because a lot of restaurants and cafes would collect their veg from one of the markets, but that just didn't suit me because like we just had a crazy, crazy, uh, we always had really busy weekends like with, with brunch. So I would always have to drive out to the farm on like maybe a Tuesday afternoon. I'd go in, like do loads of prep in the morning. The other chef would come in and I'd go and like collect the veg like on my lunch break, come back and then like do the roster for the week pay wages or like do invoices or you know yourself like you just like basically the behavior of a crazy person when you're trying to <laughs> like, yeah never yeah, ending list of yeah exactly like yeah and so then that would always that was always just really strong bonds that was maintained like making those kind of journeys out to the farm and then when myself and Ashling finished up in FIA we were planning to like we really wanted to open our own restaurant or maybe not even a restaurant but just something like have our own kind of food project and and um, I remember having a conversation like with Jenny and she's like, ever fancy doing a, you know, a real day's work to come out to us in the farm. And, um, yeah, I like a challenge. So we went out there. We had like, you're like, I know of, what a real day's work is. I've been yeah, exactly. Like, restaurants yeah, yeah. my whole life. And then you're like, Oh, yeah, right, actually, <laughs> which is actually, it's fascinating because if, if you spent any length of time working in hospitality or especially in the kitchen, working on a farm is like very well suited to that because there is, like on the farm, there has to be a certain level of working together and a certain level of camaraderie because they, yeah, like in the middle of a wet autumn when, you know, if there's five tons of potatoes that need to be dug, then like everyone is staying until that job is done. Similarly, like in a restaurant, like if there's something that needs to be prepped and you need like three or four people to help you or you know yourself, it's not like, oh, well, like it's five o'clock, it's time for me to go home now. The farm is like... <laughs> They don't work like that. And I think kitchens don't really work like that either, or restaurants especially, which is probably a good and a bad thing. But And then we, yeah, so that was at a time when we had decided we were going to move down the country. Like I was, I think, I think I'd gone through this like journey where I reached a point where I was, I thought that I was, my next step was to open a restaurant. Um, but in hindsight, like I was far too inexperienced, didn't have any money. And, and I think it was maybe just kind of succumbing to 
like not pressure the range you but like expectations where it's like time to like move on do your own thing and because then we moved into the house in Slane and in the meantime we'd also started doing like our own little pop-up under the kind of root moniker and um the plan for us was to like start off with something really small really intimate like up in Rockbury house um so we lived on the grounds of Rothenry at the time and we kind of started putting together like a small business plan. It wasn't going to take much investment. We try and work with our landlady, um, Ashling Law there to maybe like grow some veg and kind of do it as more of like a boutique B&B experience rather than like a destination restaurant. Because um, I think I decided at that point that I really didn't want to get myself involved in in that kind of like style experience or offering um, I I'd kind of like dipped my toe into the fine dining end of things a little bit but I'd, not for, it just wasn't for me when I tried it and I knew that's not the direction I wanted to go in and I think a lot of those destination restaurants are more suited to like those fine dining experiences so I was kind of thinking more something like you know there might be eight guests and they all have to arrive for dinner at like seven o'clock and you basically just throw out a big family style spread like it could be a few courses or you could do something like in the garden and then people come into the house and then they have dessert, like, you know, outside in the walled garden again, or something like that's a bit more different. That was like so that after can... your experience at FIA, were you kind of like burnt out from the the crush of like running a service that had like tur- fast turns and trying to fill seats and stuff like that? So you're kind of thinking yeah. in like a different direction, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I just knew that I couldn't sustain what we were doing in fear at the time so i wanted to try and explore something else like i was in there we were open seven days a week but i worked six days a week and then usually the seventh day you're either like recovering or you had to have like meetings with the owners or you, you know yourself like it's just i, I totally burnt out like and, yeah um got into a stage and do you guys know james hoffman he's based in london he has his own coffee roastery and and has an amazing kind of like youtube platform but um he was doing a podcast about you know he started up his own business and he kind of had this little like it was almost like a little punchline where he basically said that the quickest way to like hate something you love is just to work at it in a really like toxic unhealthy manner and i think that's what you know cooking for me it started as a hobby then i started really to love like i absolutely adored my time in the family and kind of wanted to move on just to keep learning because I was like so I had so much energy for it and a real like enthusiasm but I think going into Pia because I was the owner had no hospitality experience so it was like oh like how are we going to like fix this problem or there's an issue here and I you know my hand would just be the first one to go up I was like grand like I'll just do it don't worry like I'll just whatever like I'll just work like 150 hours like in a week if that even exists or whatever you know it's just I think you have this like blind, maybe like um, naivety and that can be like very destructive because you're like so happy to do it in the beginning because you're getting to like express yourself. But, you you know, you can only do that for so long and then you just slowly, slowly drain your energy reserves and then maybe like the realities of running a business start to kick in after like the honeymoon period of opening something new and, you know, then you're like, having meetings with the owners and they're like, Oh, can we not like put the prices up or like, why is the GP so bad on this? And what about staffing? Like, or, you know, are we giving too many hours to these people? Like, are we paying them too much? And you know, then you're kind of like 
talk like that. I just want to cook food. Like he just like <laughs> yeah. you know, so many people have like lived that experience where and, and I talk to friends now who are like want to open restaurants and I'm like like my stomach stomach stinks where I'm like, oh man, like you just have no idea like what you're in for. Like it's just You're like maybe don't do that. I don't know. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> but like that no seriously like it's like if you love cooking and if that's something you're so passionate about, like don't open a fucking restaurant. Like <laughs> I, I don't know. That's how I feel about it now. Obviously, haven't been through my fair share of uh, good and bad experiences. Like, but um, well, there is that like uh, kind of that that thing about like the frog in the pot of like slowly boiling water, and then all, you look yeah. up and you're like, oh my god, how did I get here? Like this is not yeah, like, that's the, it. What, what, yeah. what I was setting out to do. Okay, so really quick. Just let's go back to McNally. And oh yeah, sorry. Yeah. Like a little bit about what that was like for you guys, and um, um, do you feel like you know? Do you feel like you gain something that you're taking with you in you know in your future work? Do you gain a better? I know you had you have the history with them, but actually, like, how did working on the yeah. farm kind of fit into that? So we yeah we initially worked there for a month in that summer when we were just. We were just kind of waiting to move down to play. And then I had a couple of things lined up, like consultancy jobs and that. And then COVID hit, like, and at the time we were still, we we were working on the farm then, like, as paid farmhands, maybe only, maybe three or four days a week. It was kind of sporadic. It was here and there. It wasn't really a set in stone kind of thing because we were still trying to get our own project off the ground. But then, like, as soon as COVID hit, Jenny called, but, and was like, do you guys want to like work here full time or how, like, you know, cause you're not really going to have anything else to do. And, uh, yeah, so we, we kind of just jumped into that like head first. And I think we worked at the farm for nearly, I think it was 18 months, essentially through, we saw it through like through lockdown. And, uh, it was really like, uh, it was a godsend because, um, you know, we just moved into a new house and needed to pay rent and bills. So. You know, obviously it was a way to like make a living, but then also I, I found for myself, like personally, just that the, you know, just being constantly active, like working outside, it was so good for the head in terms of not having to, you know, being in, if I was say in a restaurant scenario or a cafe scenario, similarly to how we were when we moved on into slaying, like you're checking the news every single day, every single hour, it's like, what are the level of restrictions? What can we do? What can't we do? Like, what if the staff member gets COVID? Like, can we afford to pay the staff this week until like the COVID payments come through? Like, I didn't have to worry about any of that working on the farm. All you're doing is like showing up at eight o'clock in the morning, you walk into the shed, your name is written on the whiteboard, like Keith, go pick like 50 kilos of carrots. It's like, great. Like, that's all I have to, you know, that's, that's like your whole world for the, the entirety of that day. And then it just really like, insulated us from what was going on in the outside world and then also you know you're for not to get too like grandiose about it but you are an essential worker and like you know you're getting to go to work every day and you know that what you're doing is really helping people through like a tough time during the lockdown because for a lot of people coming out to the farm and picking up like a box of veg might have been the height of like their social activity um during that lockdown and i think yeah, it's funny because talking to 
other people in the industry or even some food writers like, oh, like it's a very like, that's a very like, um, clever move going out to, to work on the farm and to learn more about the veg side of things and how that all fits in with your story and everything. And as if like I planned this or like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'd be like, yeah, first I'll have a, a small plates, uh, natural wine. And then I'm going to, then there's going to be a global pandemic and I'll go to the farm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to be so good for the brand. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, which is just so far from the truth. Like, yeah. So I think we wanted to talk about like, you know, there was a recent article about toxic work environments specifically around mm-hmm. kitchens. So I was wondering like from your perspective of people that you're talking to, um, like what's, what's changed in the way that like people are thinking about working in restaurant work yeah. and approaching food in general. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. HRN is home to transformative exchanges about food. We hope our diverse lineup of shows opens your eyes, educates, and empowers. I spent seven years working in the restaurant and bar industry in front of house and back of house. And I just feel like Heritage Radio Network's content helps me feel so well connected to the other creators and chefs and restaurateurs and all the amazing things that they're doing. I still feel like I get to be a part of the kind of in team. Join us during our summer membership drive by donating and becoming a member. Members play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member today. We thank you for your support. We read the, the article that, that Katie McGinnis recently wrote in The Independent about oh, yeah. um, Dublin restaurants um, and toxicity. And, you know, as an American, it's really like strange and interesting to see that you're not actually allowed to name any of the the abusers, you know, as I'm sure you read a lot of American media, like the article you referred to earlier yeah. about all these toxic chefs and, you know, they put, um, they might, they might, uh, the laws are different obviously, but they might introduce mm-hmm. 70 people. And so they're like, okay, they're editors. Like, this is okay. You can, you can print this. And, you know, one of the first things I thought of when I read that, um, that article that McGinnis wrote was, you know, mm-hmm. it bummed me out a little bit as a consumer because I would like to not go to yeah. those restaurants, you know, what's but it's point, just like, what's the point in writing yeah. an article like that? If you're not going to, yeah, name if you place. can't, yeah, no one's really going to be held accountable. Yeah. Oh, right? that's such a tricky one. I think so. Yeah. So maybe like for somebody like Hayden McGinnis, you know, is a very well-respected and well-regarded food critic and food writer in probably what like we have the, the Irish Independent and the Irish Times to be the two 
biggest broadsheet newspapers in Ireland. So as maybe she could possibly be the, be the first person to even like, you know, open the Pandora's box in Ireland. And it hopefully maybe leads the way to like having a bit more open, honest journalism that doesn't try to, you know, not consider, um, you know, you, you can't look at what's happening in the States and in Copenhagen and just assume that everything's great in Ireland. Like, where do you think a lot of the guests who work here gain their experience and, and why are we any different? So, um, like, looking enough, like, I, I don't think I've worked in, in environments that have approached that level before. Um, I did one day in, in Noma when they were doing a pop-up under the bridge, like, with my friend Kuo and then, like, it's a very intense environment, but like I, I didn't experience any of that negativity. But obviously, like I was only there for a day, and you're just working as an intern, so you don't really know a lot of like the the abusive behavior either happens behind closed doors or it's like really well guarded. That if you were just to kind of rock in there, like as a as an intern, like you wouldn't really know what you don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. It's almost like the closer um, you get to the center of things, the worse it gets in a lot of places like that. But I would say, I would say that in New York, it's a little bit different because it, you know, considering the restaurant I worked at, it was, you know, it was an open kitchen and sure the customers in the restaurant didn't know what was going on behind the pass, but I mean, everyone who worked there saw it and it went on for years and years and years. And I think it's, it's just interesting to me, these articles keep coming out and, you know, some of the chefs get held accountable and some of them lose their restaurants and, um, yeah, you know, but, but it seems like the, like the culture of abuse is still there and still continues, you know, especially at the, um, especially it seems to me to be, um, or maybe this is just where the investigations are, but it's a lot of it is happening at the, the Michelin star level, you know, higher end restaurant is. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's such a fascinating, like insight as well, because I, like when I was a teenager and into my twenties, like I was obsessed with, uh, cycling and road cycling in particular and like would obsessively follow like all the grand tours and big races and, and all this kind of stuff. And at the time, you know, that's when like all of the Lance Armstrong doping controversy hit and, you know, I didn't believe it at first and yada yada. But I mean, I think it was like with so much of that negative journalism, not negative journalism, honest journalism, I guess, focused on cycling at the time. And we know full well that that's going on like in every single top tier sport like across the world I, like prove me wrong but like that's happening like at the highest level of like nba basketball football soccer like every single sport it's happening and i would say that that is happening in other industries outside of hospitality and restaurants but maybe it's just trendy to talk about them at the moment like and also if somebody wrote a, an article about like the toxic environment of like goldman sachs like who really cares and you know the public don't really engage with these corporations in a way that they can engage with restaurants. And it's just, it makes for good journalism, I suppose. Um, yeah, there's also, there's like a stark difference between sitting in a restaurant and looking at this absolutely gorgeous plate of food mm. that tastes amazing and knowing that, you know, the chef that made it was told his life was worthless while he was plating it for you or something like that. It makes yeah. it, you know, the memory of it sours a memory, maybe just well, a even bit. more dramatic is like, you know, the server will come to the table and tell you how wonderful a life the pig had that you're eating right now. Yeah. yeah. And then in the back, someone's getting, yeah, like 
yelled mm-hmm. at and thrown shit at and all this yeah. stuff. Yeah, or like restaurants um, definitely is prevalent over here as well, but try and make like sustainability and sustainable practices such a big part of their sourcing. And we only use like, you know, these LED light bulbs and coffee cups. And it's like, yeah, but like your staff turnover is terrible because like you treat everyone like shit and your your wages are awful. And, you know, it's like, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Maybe I'm just trying to be like, I don't know, controversial, but um, it like it's okay. Our podcast, our podcast could use a little more contra yeah, controversy. Yeah. I think, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like that extent, like that idea of sustainability. Like I don't understand how people don't understand to that extent into like the people that work for you as well. And I think I, I don't know. Like I've been I've been really lucky. Like, I think the very first restaurant that I worked in in New Zealand um, was a Mexican restaurant. But the head chef was South Korean, and there was some Mexicans working there, Cambodian, Vietnamese. It was a really like big mishmash of different nationalities, so there was no sort of like white patriarch kind of rising to the top and, and sort of uh, you know ruling with an iron fist. And so I had a really good like you know my first kitchen experience is a really good one, and I think I was just unlucky after that. Like I've definitely I've been in certain scenarios and situations in other people's kitchens where you've witnessed things happening that um you know definitely couldn't be going on but i think like by and large i've been lucky enough to have like worked and then also like because i had such a good experience in the pumbly and really like excelled in terms of went from just starting my cooking journey to, to like really feeling like passionate about what i was doing and having like a really strong sense of what I jo- enjoyed and did enjoy about cooking or or whatever. I, I think like I tried to replicate that like everywhere else I went because I knew that that was a really big part of why I had gotten on so well there. Um, and, and like the, the Fumbly is like known, I mean, to my understanding, to mm-hmm. our understanding, it's known for being a relatively non-hierarchical <clears throat> kitchen space, right? There's It's like a very yeah. cooperative space and, you know, it's more of like a, there's a team structure to things as opposed to like you said the white patriarch like at the top running everything like do you think that is that i mean i guess like is that true and did it also contribute to that place being a better working environment from your experience yeah true for sure it's definitely true i think um like you know yourself if like naturally a sort of hierarchy will form in terms of levels of experience like within that kitchen but um there was never okay to so say like if i can think of like maybe even a scenario or something in the fumbly if there was like a new chef struggling with with something it wasn't a case of like say myself or one of the other more experienced chefs if we were in like a normal kitchen scenario say we were like the two chef and the new chef was a commie it wasn't a scenario where like if i didn't feel like i could trust someone could, could like do their you know an aspect of like their prep list that I would go and like take that job off them because I feel like they, they're not going to learn quick enough to be able to do it in the time that like we all need it done in so I'm just going to go and do it and probably like berate them for it or make them feel bad you know it's about, it was more about like okay like such and such is like struggling with it maybe they don't know how to do it let's just like take the time and we were like afforded the time to learn from each other and to show each you know because I had been that person as well, like, and made, like, 
had most hilarious mistakes in the beginning of like my journey that it was a very it was just a very supportive space well they um, you know it seems like i mean we did speak to ashling for an earlier episode of this podcast and you know we know yeah, that they great. just celebrated the um 10th anniversary and so kind of contrary to what we were saying earlier before about getting burnt out in restaurants i mean clearly mm-hmm they're doing something right there. And if you, if you are able yeah. to stay open for 10 years, it's so much longer yeah. than most restaurants do, even ones that get global rankings and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I think it is, you know, it's really um, inspiring to me. It seems like from an outsider's yeah. perspective, it seems like the people that work there, um, you know, operate more like, I guess you could say that all restaurant kitchens are kind of like families, but most of them are like toxic and dysfunctional, mm-hmm. but maybe there's something a little bit better about yeah. there was never, you know, the way like, that they're running it. Yeah. Like I've worked in other, other kitchens or scenarios where they, you know, like you get in the next morning and someone else put on your deck in the day before and they've left it a certain way or like maybe they didn't fully get through their, their list. And like, yeah, it's a family, but like there are these like small moments of like resentment there or, that that just didn't exist in the fumbly because if somebody was struggling to get something done, it would have been like, you know, they'd raise their hand and be like, listen, I'm not going to get through this today. And everyone would just kind of come to help out because there was never any sort of like guilt or shame attached to like being that person who's maybe having not a great day or kind of struggling. Whereas like maybe in some other like traditional or certainly like these more toxic kitchens it's like if you make a mistake it's like you're a donkey and it's like you're held up as an example of like what not to do and like what a like terrible terrible workplace to to be in like i yeah i think it's it just really wasn't like that in the public it's really easy to um like forget that places like that exist and that mm-hmm. positive working environment like yes it's obviously yeah, yeah. Well, largely the exception to the rule and there are a lot of places that are are really bad, but like then people would say stuff like, Oh, you know, kitchens have a toxic work environment. And it's like, okay, well maybe it's the, like, maybe it's just the fact that there's toxic people running this place Yeah, <laughs> that is actually yeah, no, creating that, you know? Um, yeah. and like, you know, it's clearly possible to create, uh, more cooperative environments that people support each yeah. other. I love the phrase you, I actually wrote it down where you said we were afforded the time to learn from each other. Cause that is really what it's about. It's like, well, mm-hmm. setting that, setting that as a priority that allowed for that to happen. That was a yeah, conscious of decision there, it, you know, it's also like, it's not like the system in the family is not perfect. And it's a really big risk to take to, uh, kind of uh, try and do something differently in it in an industry that is so well established and it really relies heavily on the personalities that are like in that kitchen and I, it's so funny because I think when I was listening to Ashling's podcast there's this real interesting question of whether like does the fumbly attract all of these like really creative people who want to learn and then move on and open their own thing and it was like is the fumbly like really fortunate to have had these people walk through their doors or are we really fortunate to have somewhere like the fumbly exists where we can like grow and learn and uh it like that system that has made the fumbly work so well it relies on like that cult like there's a culture there that 
will exist. And if you're somebody who can buy into that culture, then you will become someone who will like carry that culture on within the family and then also wherever else you go. Um, and like by culture, I mean like it's not that it's a set of rules, but it's a sort of, uh, it's like a feeling you have when you're working there and when you're surrounded by, you know, by other creative people that, do you know what I'm trying to say where it's like, like you're talking about, like maybe it's not these toxic workplaces, it's like toxic people that work there. And that I think like if you're in a scenario where there are a lot of toxic people present, one positive person is never going to change, turn the tide on that because it's it a culture there that exists. And I think Ashton and Luca have put in so much like groundwork on creating that culture there that hopefully like perpetually it'll just continue to attract that kind of person who thrives there. But then I don't know, like with the way things are now, I, I don't know. I think uh, like in my, in my experience, like, the bad places to work are either bad because <clears throat> there is a hierarchy and the people at the top of the hierarchy set a bad example mm -hmm. or the people at the top, like don't set any example and then let the people under them in the hierarchy do yeah. the bad things. And th so there's always some allowing yeah. of the, of that behavior to happen. And I think like it's not rocket science, but if the people who have the ability to set the example, set a good example, and then bad actors are basically like removed from the environment. Then you have yeah. like that, that is going to do like 90% of the work there, you know? Yeah, definitely. For sure. Yeah. And it's so interesting. Like when you do move on and start running your own project and running your own business, I think when you come from a very positive environment, you you obviously want to try and replicate that as much as possible. And then look, you just gain a whole new level of appreciation for like what the fumbly is or like how how it does operate like that because you try and bring that a little bit into your own into your own business and it's really hard and you have to really like fight the urge to to micromanage and you know there, there was moments like during the project in Blaine where it was like really really busy everyone's working really hard like it's stressful because of COVID and like you can see that like your staff are tired and, and they're still working super hard. And like, you think like you're trying to pay them as much as you can. And, and then you're just like, you're like, I wonder if these people are happy. And then you're like, you wake up one morning and you're like, am I like the bad guy now? Or like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. You're like, oh, try not to be the bad guy. Well, Max, you know, Max shared this list with me. And one of the, one of the things on the list that we haven't really talked about, which I guess we his talk beige about with food. his page food, <laughs> which we talk about with a lot of the, the guests on yeah. the podcast is just like other people's perceptions of, of Irish food. Um, oh yeah. The, the beige food thing is so funny. I love it. Um, I, why? I don't know. I think, I think it's probably, it's part and parcel of, uh, like uh, at the moment, like with my job and probably my pro previously and probably just because of the, the background I've come from. But sometimes I just think of myself as like a professional home cook where like I just, like I was saying, I've kind of shied away from that fine dining scene and I've worked in it before. And like I've been on sections that have had very like intricate preparations and plating and garnet and all this kind of stuff and you kind of get like halfway through plating a dip and you're like this is fucking cold or it's gone warm or like 
have to shit on this place wilting, like take it off again, spray it with ice water. And like, I, I don't know. I, I think like the, the whole bait food thing is so funny because it's kind of like just the, and this is to like, I suppose the Instagrammable fine dining food that we're so exposed to now at the moment, like with, uh, with high end restaurants and like, if I just think of like some of the great, great meals I've had, like over the years, like it's usually been just very, like very amazing local ingredients prepared, prepared like really simply and just like, I don't know, for want of a better word, kind of like thrown from a frying pan onto a plate. Maybe like you wipe some of the like smudge marks off the rim of the plate, but you know what I mean? It's like honest food served in a very honest way. And, and even like sometimes working in these other restaurants where you're like doing very intricate things and you like taste the dip and you're like, like, yeah, maybe I can taste like one or two things on this plate and all the rest of it's just like for show, you know? And, and I think like that the sort of bait food, uh, movement, <laughs> uh, was just really about like pairing that or, you know, kind of like holding a mirror up to like the ridiculousness of what. And like, I've been guilty of it myself, like a lot of the time where you're like, you're like being very creative about a certain dish and you're kind of wondering like, what does it need? Does it need more? Does it need to look a certain way? What if I like slice all these beetroot really thin and then punched them into like circles and then made it into a rose, which I've done like on numerous occasions, like, and actually like that, that dish is beautiful. But you know, at the end of the day, you're like, you're eating it. You're like, if you just like blended all this up and like fed it to me blindfolded, It'd be the, it, you know what I mean? Like, it'd be the, literally the fucking same thing as having spent, like, like, no joke, 10 minutes trying to, like, plate it up. I'm constantly trying to, like, pare back and, like, make things simpler. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's not that the food actually looks beige or that. It's, beige a, is just like a state of mind. I get it. Yeah, it is. Beige <laughs> is a state of mind. It, 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 um, so it's kind of like anti, anti-tweezers? Yeah, yeah, 100%. It's, it's the kind of food that everyone wants to cook, but, like, just take time to realize that, you know, and um, take time to realize that that's what you want to, you just want to go back to the origins of it. Like yeah, you got to melt those, you well. got to melt those tweezers down and use them for something Yeah, else. exactly. Yeah. And like Make the most, work. yeah, the most popular dip when we were at Greenman Wines was like, it was um, these really beautiful, like pointed summer cabbage from McNally's. And before service, like we would pot roast them. So like in a really, really wide, heavy, like, um, I don't, I don't, I won't say the fancy French word. Nobody will understand it, but just a really wide pot. You know what I mean? Um, like a rondo or rondel. You can say like, rondo. Yeah. Yeah. Say. Okay. I'll just say rondo. Uh, you see, I didn't come from that background. So I just picked these words. And I'm like, oh, that's what that word is. Um, Find the big pot. No, the other big yeah, pot. Yeah. 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 Not exactly. That's kind of yeah. big, the wide big. Yeah. Um, and it was just something that I was cooking at home. And, uh, so we sliced all the cabbages in half, melt loads of butter in the big pot. Uh, when that butter was foaming, put the cabbages cut side down, and then we'd finish them on like a Conroe grill with, you know, really high heat charcoal on one side. So you had this like really interesting, like one side of it was totally charred. And cause he'd put the halved cabbages in half. So we had a quarter, one side of it was like totally green. One side of it was totally black. And then that's it was just those grilled cabbages. And then we were getting really good sourdough from Shane and I really don't like throwing away the, the ends of the bread. So we just dry all that out, 
blend it into breadcrumbs and then fry that off in the cabbage butter, kind of like pan grattato, like crispy breadcrumbs. And then the sauce would always change. Like the, the dish just like blew out and people would be like raving about it. And you're like, there's literally like, like butter, cabbage, breadcrumbs and like onion. And you're kind of like, but that really just went to the heart of like what I love about cooking and food where you know, it wasn't like a coat to buff to share between two people, but I feel felt like a similar experience where, you know, a big portion of cabbage went down on the table and people were like carving it for themselves. And it, like, it was the most, probably the most base thing that I've ever cooked. And I don't know why, but like, it's just anytime, like, yeah, I can get my hands on those pointy cabbages, like they're getting pot roasted. That's amazing. Sounds really yeah. good. It sounds like you nailed it because that's something that also not just that something that you like to cook, but clearly it's something that people were really excited about eating too, which is really interesting. Yeah. You know. You know? So um, I guess my last kind of question is, is um, you know, you've been working in, in food for a while and you know a lot of people. So like what's... Yeah. What's the vibe right now in terms of like, where are people headed? I mean, you, you're obviously yeah. going in a certain direction. I'm curious to know whether you think like you're going to do mm-hmm. something, whether you all will start roots again in some form yeah. with your free time ever or, um, <laughs> or not. And also just like, are people is like the next sort of generation of cooks. Like, are they going into, are they going to work in to restaurants or I know there's a staffing shortage and like, what's going to happen? Talk, talk to us yeah <laughs> i um i think i have to be yeah in some ways i have to be careful because like i i'm in a very like compared to most other depths that i know or who, who i would be in touch with like working in dublin like i'm in an extremely privileged position um like i live next door to the kitchen i just get to cook what I want, when I want, serve it to like really nice people who are like the best regular customers you could ask for. Um, I don't have a budget. Um, so I just work with the owners on what kind of food they like to eat and then they go out and source it. So yeah, I think I have to be very careful with, you know, I don't want, you know, cause a lot of people are struggling at the moment. Um, especially with the like rocketing, um, cost of living in Ireland. It's just, like I, I wouldn't be able to afford to work the job that I have at the moment, even on the salary that I'm on and live in Dublin. Um, and so I really feel like for people who are in less privileged positions, trying to, trying to live in Dublin, I suppose, to bring it back to the fumbly in some ways, like it's fascinating to see how somewhere like that will evolve as the landscape changes because the family grew out of like the recession and Dublin was affordable at the time and somewhere like that excelled because it had such great support from artists and musicians and really creative people and it just seems like looking in from the outside that that sort of community is maybe slowly dwindling in Dublin and moving to more rural communities like say West Clare or West Cork um, these kind of places um, businesses need to start appreciating and realizing that staff and people are not some kind of endless resource that you can kind of just rifle through if things don't work out it's like okay we'll just hire someone else into that job and if they can hack the working conditions then we'll just find someone else to do it and 
And I I think those days are numbered, quite frankly. And so, you know, so there's an opportunity there. It's like, if you can find the right working environment, that, if sorry, if you're, as a business, if you could provide the right working environment, I think you'd like excel in business and also like just as a, as a business, because, uh, uh, you know, people are crying out for better working conditions, better pay, and are willing to work for that, you know? Um, I don't know. I don't know if similar is happening over in the States. Um, but it's almost like people, you know, because staff have had time during COVID maybe to take stock and a lot of people have like migrated into different industries, but those who date, they're probably thinking like, well, if I'm going to stay in this, like it really has to be worth it. So I am going to demand better working conditions and, and a living wage, not just the minimum wage and, um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Here and, wages have gone up like considerably and yeah. And the cost of goods as well is the same in the state. Yeah. Yeah. Just to, yeah. I mean, things like oil and, and paper goods and like stuff that you just don't even really think of as yeah. cauliflower, right? Isn't cauliflower? <laughs> cauliflower. Cal- wow. Yeah. Like it's just, it's, it's everything, but it's also mm-hmm. a, like, it's also a couple of random Random, random things things are just mean, like yeah. what's happening there you know I was talking to some people that um like i did an event and had to hire some folks for one night and oh yeah like oh yeah i just do this now and i i don't have a real i don't have a full-time job like why would i want to do that you know that somebody was trying to hire me and i was like well i just do a couple of events and mm-hmm. you know but they weren't paying dublin rent so <laughs> that's yeah the that's story that's true yeah i think interesting as well i think the like the, you know, like there's no such thing as a cheap food, like as we all know. And if within like a food business, um, like it, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens now, like as the cost of goods increases and wages go up, like inevitably like prices will have to go up and we'll actually have to start paying like what food is worth in terms of the level of hours that go into it and the price of all these commodities that go to making up that meal you have in a restaurant. But yeah, like it's really tricky. I think like fine dining restaurants will inevitably like survive because, you know, if you're going to somewhere like I'm sure here in Ireland or Noma, like in Copenhagen, if you're willing to like make that pilgrimage, what's the difference between like 450 euro and 500 euro? Um, you know, obviously, if you're, so I think those fine dining restaurants will still thrive and they're the restaurants that can afford to pay more for like better ingredients and then pass that increase on to the customers. And then also maybe those restaurants, maybe they're the ones that can provide better working conditions and despite like what we're seeing in the media, but those restaurants will consistently attract like very ambitious, young, creative chefs. And then on the other end of like the spectrum, places like, you know, a burger joint or like a chicken shop, those places that don't really rely heavily on skilled staff, they might survive as well. And that can run like the figures like very tight in terms of like their portion control and, and that kind of stuff. Like maybe those restaurants will survive, but it's kind of like those neighborhood sort of maybe like not quite fine dining casual restaurants that might really feel the squeeze because they're competing with like so many other restaurants that are sort of charging in and around whatever 
you know, $70 or 50 euro for a three course meal and, and, you know, and some petty pour or something like that. Uh, maybe those, those restaurants like that, what they charge is really dictate, um, where they fit into like this, um, that kind of equation of, you know, low end, high end restaurants where you have those middle of the ground, middle of the road restaurants that like you would casually go to like two or three nights a week. Like people aren't doing that anymore because they don't have as much disposable income. And then those restaurants can't charge more because then people just go elsewhere because there's so much competition in that, that kind of level. Um, if that makes any sense, they've been kind of going around in circles there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, tough. I don't know. I don't want to be, yeah, I don't want to be negative. Like there's a lot of good things happening in, in Ireland, like in the sort of, uh, I mean, like you guys want to run food tours here, so it must be doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out, right? We'll find yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I think there's tons of interesting stuff going on and obviously we're biased, but like it is, um, mm-hmm. like it, it's a really interesting time like for restaurants specifically. And a lot of what we're interested in is like try to think about food more broadly and how to think about a food experience as not just having to do with restaurants. That's like, you know, you can see that in like who, who we talk to on the podcast. It's not always just chefs. It's like people who are Mm -hmm. growing food and people who are, are writing about food and people who are dealing with, um, uh, sustainability issues and stuff like that. So it's, Yeah. yeah. And I think, I mean, just to sort of add on to that, um, you know, Ireland, promotes itself as a green tourism destination. And, and, and I really think that that's large, you know, it's largely because Ireland is a very green country. Um, mm-hmm. but I think when you, you know, start to scratch the surface a little bit, you see that there's just as many environmental problems, you know, as there are anywhere else. And I think, well, you know, that's one of the things we're trying to do on the podcast also is to try to shine a spotlight on, um, the people that are doing really good things, whether they How are farmers or <laughs> wildlife or chefs or something like that, <laughs> no. you know, because, because those things like, like the kind of like those mom and pops restaurants that you were talking about, like the, the, yeah. the people that are like working really hard and that are, you know, doing things like quote unquote, right for, for lack yeah, of a better sure. word, like really do need to be getting more of the attention. Yeah. Big time. I, I was thinking of this while we were talking about, the Katie McGinnis article and I was talking to another friend about this and it was possibly, it was during COVID and when we had, so last summer down in Slane Castle, we kind of had to pull something out of nowhere to have some kind of a food offering during the summer. So we rented like a big tent and I got a, you know, the gazebo and I basically tore out half the kitchen from the castle and set up like a taqueria and like the food that we were serving, like we were super proud of, like it was really, really nice. And we got like a really, like an amazing review in one of the big newspapers, you know, and like a lot of the time you get these like scores and it's like whatever, like 8.5 out of 10 or like nine out of 10 or something like that. And I'm like talking to Ackling just like quite like openly and honestly. And I was like, to be honest, like if this wasn't COVID, that'd be like a five or six when, I think what I'm trying to get at is that like kind of to go back to that, to that article, it's like, there's been like a message sent around to a lot of food writers and journalists. And it's like, please don't say anything bad about it. It's like, we're trying to attract 
in all this uh, foreign investment or we're trying to attract in to tourism and we need to be like writing really good reviews about our restaurants to attract tourists over from the UK and from mainland Europe and um, yeah like if that restaurant was named in that article like you just know how devastating that would be for business and like in I don't know if it's the same in the States but it's like anything sort of not defamatory but like you know you can't really attack jobs and you can't attack you can't attack businesses in that way like that's generally the attitude over here and uh like that as well there were so many like great reviews written during covid for restaurants because nobody wanted to be the bad guy like nobody wanted to write those bad reviews or kind of shine a light on it but that doesn't really solve anything um and like i like the idea of like restaurant critics for example mm -hmm. you know not writing takedown pieces but writing reviews when they have a really wonderful experience. And I like yeah. the idea of food writers supporting restaurants, especially yeah. during the pandemic. But I also hear what you're saying that if you don't, um, if you don't criticize or like, I was really shocked to learn a few months ago that there are only a hundred vegetable growers in, in Ireland. Um, mm -hmm. it seems like such a small number to me. Um, yeah. and I think if you don't interrogate some of those other things or other parts of the industry, then of course, how is anything going to change? for the better if you just kind of sweep it under the rug yeah for sure yeah i think it may be um like if somebody had told me like you can be you can be part of like the food scene in ireland or you can be part of gastronomy without having to be a chef i probably would have considered that back at a younger age um because i just you know i've always loved food and loved so much around that like whether that's restaurant experiences or you know, just just really great like Irish produce, um, and I think maybe that's where I'm trying to. That's the direction I'm trying to go in now is like find a place within all of this madness, like, but just not like I'll still cook, like that's my job, like, but I'd I'd like to not be like thought of as a chef in, in you know, it, yeah, maybe that's a bit of like an imposter syndrome there where I don't really feel as as much of a chef as like some of my friends or or peers i kind of just i would i just want to be like part of the conversation but I, maybe i don't want to cook all the time i don't know maybe i need to be a food writer but i'd be a terrible food writer uh, <laughs> yeah you're like this or is not beige enough uh three out of ten <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> needs more beige <laughs> yeah Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at diedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org.